0: we thank you for your word, for all of it, even the parts we don't immediately understand. We pray that your spirit would give us wisdom um, so that we do uh, have an understanding of what you would say to us as a church in our age through this word which was given to a church in another age. Be with us as we contemplate what you would have to say to us today. Amen. As I hinted, this isn't the typical missionary text, and you may wonder why he chose this text. I thought perhaps you might, that was one minor reason you support me as a missionary who teaches New Testament in Germany. Maybe you'd like to know whether I can actually explain a text. That would be good for a New Testament teacher to do. But more than that, I want to convince you that this text is quite relevant and really important for each of us as individuals, and for us as a church as well. I think when it comes to the book of Revelation, there are basically two types of people. First of all, there are the fanatics. They like to work out every detail regarding the end times. They're the ones with those lists with all the arrows, you know. They have it out in their bunker in the backyard down there. They're planning out their strategy for getting through all this. Those are the one group. And then there's the other group there. I would characterize maybe as the fearful. They really don't like the book of Revelation because they find its imagery unintelligible and, to be frank, threatening, scary. They'd rather make a big uh, circle around this book. But I actually think that this book is not unintelligible and it is very interesting even understandable, more than you think, if you keep a few basic principles in mind. I love to teach this book. I teach it every two or three years at the seminary with that goal in mind that my students understand that it really is for them. I think it's very relevant for our lives right now. And it was designed to be relevant, Uh, not to give... Christians detailed information about the future, there is some information about the future in it, but actually to help Christians live their lives wisely in challenging times. I often t- say to my students, I don't really get why that would be such a great book for f- Christians living in the first century if its meaning was in at least 2,000 years from now, this and this and this will happen. How is that supposed to help them? As a matter of fact, the book of Revelation at various points says, this is a word of prophecy that I expect you, John speaking, to do, to put into practice. There are things for you to do with this book. And so I hope that that comes through as we look at Revelation 17, which can be divided into two main parts with a transition between it. Verses 1 through 6 is the description of the vision that John saw then we have a transition where he um, is, as we'll see, uh, has a reaction to this vision, uh, and then uh, a, a, an interpretation of that vision through an angel. Um, the vision we'll start with, verses 1 through 6, is very interesting for a number of reasons. First of all, it's a static image, it's like a picture in a gallery. It's the only one like that in the book of, the Re- of Revelation. The others are actually scenes like a movie. It, there's movement, there's action, but this is a picture that John sees. It's actually also one of the very few parts of the book of Revelation where we have an interpretation that comes from God. So both of that, those things make it very special. I think it's important when we look at this vision to get the vision right. To me, one of the very first and most important uh, principles in interpreting this book is that we try to describe As carefully as possible, what John saw before we try to interpret it. We shouldn't collapse the vision in on the interpretation that often happens. It's important to remember that John is seeing, what he's seeing are symbolic depictions of a reality, to be sure, but not a direct description of reality. It's not like he's watching the nightly news from the year. Two thousand one hundred and seventy five if that happens to be the end, um, but he has symbols that are being uh, shown to him that he has to interpret sometimes we forget that when the age that I grew up in you may if you're my age, you may remember the books and you were in a church by Hal Lindsay that talked about the end times, and Hal Lindsay did that, for instance, with the chapter nine he saw the vision of the scorpions coming out of the earth with long hair and stingers and so forth and he said oh that's John saw actually saw modern-day warriors flying around well I don't think that's it the left-behind books make the same mistake in my opinion they s- take this as a picture of a reality uh, with a one-on-one correspondence and I think it's much more symbols that John is working with so we want to get the picture right so that we can interpret it, interpret the symbols John sees a woman here. She wears a label. It's a kind of a headband with a title on it, Babylon, the mother of all prostitutes. In other words, the greatest prostitute. The whore of Babylon, as she's often called in our time. What do we learn about her? First of all, she sits on many waters. We'll get back to this later. We'll look at that a little closer in the uh, description of uh, the vision, the interpretation of the vision, but then she's described as inducing the kings of the earth to fornication and drunkenness. What does that mean? Well, here we have another, I think, important principle when we deal with the Book of Revelation as to how we do with it. We deal with it. Um, what we don't want to do, um, and what many people do 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 when they uh, read something from the Book of Revelation is look for the nearest newspaper, all right? What does this mean? I better find out what event that's keyed up to. The better reaction would be to grab your Old Testament and look in the Old Testament, because if you read the book of Revelation, you'll see that all through it, it goes back to Old Testament imagery. Uh, We'll see with the beast that comes right out of Daniel, the four horsemen come right out of Zechariah and so forth. So your first reaction should be, what is the meaning of this symbol in the Old Testament? And when we look at prostitution and drunkenness, we see that it evokes a tradition that comes from the Old Testament prophets. It's used to describe the delusion and error that peoples fall for. They often describe how a certain people, often Israel, has been fooling around with another god. They're drunk because of uh, their allegiance to another god. It represents their turning away from God to something that isn't God. And that seems to be what's going on here. The idea is this prostitute has fooled all the nations to turn away from God. Then the woman is depicted as governed. Her The description of her has three different motifs, I think. First, uh, quite lascivious sensuality. She's dressed in purple and red Uh, clothing you can almost see kind of a heart-shaped bed with a red satin on it you know that kind of thing that's playing out the imagery that's playing in the background there secondly she's described in terms of great wealth and luxury she's got lots of pearls and gold and jewels and thirdly the third motif is drunkenness I think this is actually pretty easy to figure out she embodies all the attractions and temptations Of the world, all the things that get under our skin and pull us along to something that really isn't um, good for us—that leads in the end to our destruction. It's interesting, of course. This image has provoked a lot of interest in art over the centuries. Uh, Perhaps John was thinking or saw this image. This is a very early image of the of Ishtar, the goddess, the patron goddess of Babylon. She was identified as the queen of the city. And even there you can see uh, for its time particularly a quite sensual image that was drawn. Luther, the, the Lutherans toned it down in the early Luther Bible. It had this kind of medieval setting. Um, she's still dressed in red in this beast. But it's rather lame, I think, that one. Perhaps the best image um, that is acceptable for a church would be uh, this one by William Blake uh, from the 19th century, where she's depicted, I think, as a very uh, sensual person, uh, an aura of danger about her riding this uh, beast. The vision of the beast on which the woman is riding is one that it's seven, it has, it's red and it has seven heads and ten horns. Now, if you've read the book of Revelation and you were reading through it, you would have seen this beast before, at least John saw it before, in Revelation 13. There we read, the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, which is exactly what John describes here in chapter 17. And it resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. Remember those details. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and his great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. So that's chapter 13, and now he sees this beast again in chapter 17. That's the description of vision. That's what John saw. This is the picture he was viewing. Then we come to the transition in verses 6 through 7, where we read of John's reaction to the vision. Uh, The uh, the NIV says John was greatly astonished. And this Greek word that's used here can be used to describe the reaction of a man to a a beautiful woman. That is the case in, uh, in a lot of early Jewish literature. I teach a course on that. There's one book, the book of Judith, and Judith is this incredibly beautiful woman. woman. There's only beautiful women in Jewish literature. None of them are plain. They're all just gorgeous. And at the reaction to her is just, whoa, and the men are astonished. Uh, it can have that meaning. But it can also express anguish and fear and uncertainty. Um, and I think both are meant here. I think John's reaction is one of being powerfully drawn to the sensual image that he sees and at the same time horrified uh, that he is so captivated by it. This is a reaction I think that's familiar to us, unfortunately, in our experience with respect to pornographic images, right? We're aroused by the beauty and the sensuality of it. We're drawn in and yet at the same time, if we're smart, we realize danger lurks here. There's a knowledge that this is the path to destruction. It looks nice and beautiful. It's appealing. And yet, this is really evil. This can draw me in and destroy me. And in fact, it will destroy all that's truly beautiful and good. I think that's the reaction John is having to this vision. And then the angel says, you have this particular reaction. I want to explain to you now why that is the case. And we move then to the third part where we learn of the meaning of the image. Uh, first of all, the beast. There's a lot of speculation about this beast. We all know from chapter 13, even if we've never read it, that the number of the beast is 666. There's all sorts of speculation, and always has been through the centuries in the church. Which political leader that is? You know. Is it Hillary or is it Donald? You know, Depending on your... Um, in my age, it was you know the, the, there were some people who thought it was Ronald Wilson Reagan because each word each name had six letters in it. Wasn't that a telling sign? Um, that has gone on for centuries, as I said, and I don't think it's particularly helpful in understanding what God, uh, what John is saying to us. Uh, what is? How do we figure it out if um, if we have this vision? Again, we don't grab the latest newspaper we go back to the Old Testament. And particularly with the beast to Daniel 7, where Daniel sees four beasts, um, and they are a lion, a bear, a leopard, remember those details from our beast, Um, and one so terrifying that Daniel can't describe it. In other words, Daniel has these four beasts, and John has made one out of them, one big, horrifying creature with these characteristics of the four beasts in Daniel. And Daniel has made clear that these beasts represent four successive world empires, uh, starting with Babylon and then uh, the Persians and then the Greeks and the Romans, probably, um, is what he sees. John has taken these four beasts and made one out of them. He's made a conglomeration of them. And I think the uh, idea is here we have the, the prototype, the, the, the empire behind all empires, a transtemporal world empire, maybe even an ideology of empire that has set itself up against God, pursuing ends that are opposed to God. The beast has seven heads, we're told, and these are seven kings in the first century. That can only be the Roman emperors. And um, interest lies on the eighth emperor who is still to come, but is also one of the seven. And we're told he once was, and now is not, but will come in the future. And that's very intriguing. And actually in the first century, not all that hard to figure out. There was one Roman Empire. This is the first one who persecuted Christians and the first one who um, demanded worship as an emperor, and that was Nero. Nero died uh, at his own hand as the rebels were moving in to uh, kick him out anyway uh, in uh, 68 AD. Uh, but almost immediately, there were rumors all over the ancient world that people had seen him. Often Parthia, Tacitus, the Roman historian tells us that the Parthians were convinced that Nero had gone there and he was going to raise up an army and bring it and reconquer the world. Nero was kind of, as I like to say, the Elvis of the ancient world. You just couldn't keep him dead. People saw him and they were thinking, oh, he's come back. So that's kind of behind this idea he once was um, and is not now but will come again. The point seems to be that Nero was the epitome of a self-obsessed, destructive leader who wants to set himself up against God. What about the woman? She's riding the beast, and we are told that she sits on many waters and on seven hills. This seems rather obscure to us, but actually it was a well-known symbol to the readers of the book of Revelation. This has a bit of almost political cartoon idea about it. Um, If you're my age, you wouldn't have been all that nervous or concerned or anxious if you had opened up the uh, political op-ed side of your paper and saw, (laughs) say in the 80s, 70s, a cartoon of an eagle fighting with a bear. Every one of you would have known how to interpret it. That was the Cold War. This is the U.S. fighting with the Soviet Union, the, con- the competition that was going on there. And that gives us another clue. We need to interpret the symbols of Revelation within their own context. So if it's not in the Old Testament, what did the culture make of this? And actually, this symbol was quite well known. I want to show you a coin. This is called the Dia Roma coin that was minted all about 15 years before John wrote this uh, book under the emperor Vespasian. And uh, you have the coin on the left and a sketch to help you see it a little better. And we have here, as you can see, a woman sitting on seven hills. If you count those things, they kind of look like potatoes, but they're actually hills. Um, Sitting on seven hills. Look at that. On a coin that people had seen, maybe had in their pockets. Um, And on waters, off to her right, is a river god the river Tiber. Okay? Another detail that's interesting is uh, below her a little uh, wolf and two boys um, sucking at her teats. That's the legend of the founding of Rome. Romulus and Remus were the founders and they were raised by a she-wolf. Uh, so here it is, Rome. The goddess Rome, sitting on seven hills by waters. People knew what this image meant. So John has made it clear, the angels made it clear, we're talking about Rome, the empire. The Roman Empire, of course, was the world empire in the first century. It had absolute political authority. Um, You didn't mess with Rome. Countries who, except the Germans, they're very proud of that, um, countries who messed with Rome ended up uh, in bad shape. The best thing was to do was just submit to Rome, and then you would be okay. And Rome pushed this in their propaganda. You let us take over. We will take care of you. Um, The Roman era was actually one of unprecedented peace and prosperity. And Rome pushed that. We're here for you. They only had a few demands. First of all, don't criticize us. Uh, And we really don't appreciate independent thinking. And above all, we expect your worship. This is a goddess on that coin, Dia Roma, the goddess of Rome. The deification of Rome and the demand for the worship of emperors began with Nero, as we said. And it was a demand. And often, particularly Jews or then Christians, who would say, I can't worship Rome. Their neighbors who were well-meaning would say, you know, it's, it's not really that bad. Just, you know, offer a sacrifice, get on with your life. Everything will be fine. Just don't make a big deal out of this, and it's going to go, go away. That's what's going on in this vision. We have a vision of an empire and of rulers who have set themselves up against God. Why is this important for us? What does it have to do with us? What happens in the first century? Well, again, I think it's important to remember that the book of Revelation is not just about the end times, so to speak. Or actually, we could put it differently. Um, The Bible, the New Testament, mentions the end times as a phrase a dozen times in the New Testament. It is never about the way off future. It's always about the age that the church is living in and that we are living in. So we could say the end times, but we're in them. It's not something that's coming. John is writing to Christians in the first century to warn them. He exhorts them to hear the words of the book and to keep them. Revelation 1 3 Blessed is the one who reads this book aloud. It was read aloud to the con- congregation and to those who hear these words and put them into practice. This isn't just about idle speculation. It's something to do, to align our lives around. It was supposed to be relevant to their daily lives just like it should be to ours. I think, above all, what we have here is a warning that we need to beware of. Societal structures, of systems, of political ideologies and so forth that challenge the authority of the living God that demand unquestioning loyalty of us and whose influence is destructive to all that is good and healthy and beneficial for human beings. See, Satan is portrayed in this book as the dragon whose Goal is to destroy God's creation and particularly human beings. But he's not stupid. He doesn't go around saying, I'm here to destroy you. How easy would that be? He's cloaking his intentions in promises of empowerment and self realization, of building a better life for my family, things that sound good. I think. Particularly in our age, we need to be aware of the uh, the temptations and um, subtle uh, dangers in three areas. First of all, in our politics. I think no one here uh, needs to be told, even if they're young, that our political system has increasingly lost a basic sense of decency and respect There's a lot of false promises being bandied about, and even bold-faced lies. And perhaps the most dangerous of all is the implicit claim that the state will take care of everything. You don't need to worry about things. Uh, Don't even think too much about it. Just let the state take care of you. Um, Now, I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't think it's the role of preachers to endorse any political party, but I think we need to be warned that this impulse is out there Um, in our politics, uh, demeaning to basic dignity and also um, disestablishing basic uh, humans by saying somebody else will take care of you. Just don't ask too many questions about the institution and don't criticize it. That's one area. Another area might be the media. We live in an age where there's been a steady undermining of values so that, for instance, a healthy understanding of marriage of between one man and one woman for a lifetime as God's design for sexual expression and for family and even as the basis of society has been blown away in my lifetime. Um, and the old pattern... The biblical one is seen as old-fashioned and even oppressive. More subtle for Americans, perhaps, I think, is the promotion of a bold-faced materialism so that even many Christians' lives are consumed with having all sorts of stuff or pursuing a narcissistic lifestyle that revolves around their own pleasure, their own children, um, making their own life comfortable, but forgetting their part of a a church or a society, and it's not just about their own comfort. A third area might be academia, who are real shapers of culture. The philosophers and social scientists pursue a vision of the world in many cases that is not at all neutral, but it aims at reshaping our society so that there is no room for God. Academic agendas shape our culture and our thinking much more than we think. They began, for instance, 30 years ago, 23 or 30 years ago, with the radical re-envisioning of gender in obscure places like Berkeley or Paris or Boston, saying it's merely a construct. And look where we are now. Now, who would have thought we'd ever be arguing about which bathroom you go in, right? It seems to be the most uh, really common sense thing. And if you had any doubt, you just needed to look down and you could figure it out. And suddenly we're arguing about, I mean, it's just amazing. And, uh, and we're over- overwhelmed by this. We need to know where it's coming from, from these kind of agendas that have been in place for a long time. So you see, Revelation is a warning for you and for me. The warning is pretty simple. Don't be stupid. <laughs> Don't wander through life unawares. Think critically about your plans and your desires and who or what is shaping them. Don't let yourself be manipulated by the agendas of politics and media and academia. Remain loyal to God and his kingdom. I want to say, um, however, that I'm not buying here into any conspiracy theory, at least not a typical one. I don't think there's any particular group of humans that is uh, behind the scenes manipulating every detail, whether that's the Freemasons, as people used to think in the 19th century, or the Illuminati and Dan Brown's novels, or the Clinton campaign, that somebody's out there fine-tuning the details of all of this. There is a conspiracy, but it's not on the human level. There's a satanic conspiracy, Some people are more engaged uh, uh, consciously than others, but many are mere tools. They aren't the enemy, and they're not really even the problem. That's on that level of these spiritual forces. I'm also not talking here about reclaiming the good old days, whatever those were, getting back to uh, Christian America. I think probably there were some Christian principles involved in our founding. I see that but I don't think we were ever a Christian nation in the sense that everything was right about that. Come on, slavery, what we did to the Native Americans? There was never a time where we uh, embodied God's plan for a society. So we're not going back to something. We're looking at our culture and trying to influence it with these principles from God's word. I have in mind what Paul says in Second Corinthians uh, 10, 4, and 5. He says, we have weapons and we fight a war, but they are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, we have divine power to demolish strongholds. What's he thinking about here? He says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. In other words, we have vision that God gives us to discern the world, the ideologies that are out there, and understand what the Bible is teaching. Paul wants us to have our eyes wide open and not be seduced by the influences of our age. This is the goal of the book of, the Revol- of Revelation as well, that we would know what's going on. Too many of us read the book of Revelation, and again, as a newspaper from a future age but it is much more about our present, the world we live in. And it can be a slap up the backside of the head, particularly for Western Christians who have bought into the seductions of our age. In conclusion, this may not be your typical missionary sermon, but I think actually it has a lot to say about our mission as a church. I think this is actually a missionary sermon in another sense, because it's about what's holding the church back from performing its God-given task of being a witness to this world. So let me ask very provocatively, have you been sleeping with the whore of Babylon? Have you let yourself be seduced by the promises of material success or self-empowerment or the good life or whatever it is that masks destructive, anti-God ideologies? If that's so, then wake up Heed God's warning. Discern the times. Keep your eyes open and your wits about you. Otherwise, you and I, if we're not careful, will be swept away and we won't even know what hit us. Revelation, on the other hand, though, holds out a promise be faithful to Jesus. And you will be saved. You will overcome. You have nothing to fear. There's no Even in the world we live in, no reason to be downcast and dismayed because the big message of the book of Revelation is you may see things one way, but God sees it another. And from his perspective, Jesus wins. There's no doubt about it. There's nothing to fear if you walk close behind him. The one who sits upon the throne reigns and the Lamb will prevail, and the one who trusts in him will not be put to shame. Amen.